Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, my dear, lovely, amazing Roots of the Spirit community and supporters. I'm so glad to be back with you for yet another episode of the podcast. There's been quite a bit that has happened in my life between the last episode and this one. In a couple weeks, I'll be turning 40. Four, zero. I'm in a state of disbelief. However, I'm going to dedicate an entire episode to my reflections over the last four decades. Although there have been some really exciting, powerful, moving events and moments in my life, that I would love to share with you, lessons learned, insights. I'm going to save it for a solo episode coming up within the next few episodes. But today we'll focus solely on our wonderful guest, Naomi Gracechild. Naomi is a self-identified Jill of all skills and her life practices include multidisciplinary artist, musician, performer, facilitator, educator, entrepreneur, social justice activist, and worshiper of nature. As the founder of Euphony Works, Naomi brings her cross-sector experience in both urban and rural communities to help clients gain a deeper understanding of socio-political dynamics in order to effectively address issues of inequity. Naomi is a working musician and music educator and continues to be an active advocate for community building and empowerment through the arts. She is currently working on a collaborative art and music show that will exhibit during Black History Month 2020 and performs regularly singing with her band Naomi Grace. Her emerging side, 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 side hustle in progress, Melanin Rising, is a line of apparel and an online community supporting racialized musicians and arousing allyship and accompliceship. It's my pleasure to welcome Naomi Gracechild to the podcast. Naomi, thank you so much for joining me on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm super excited to have a conversation with you today. I'm really honored. Thank you very much for, for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. I was really excited when we became acquainted, which is fairly recently, because through our Facebook connection, I've realized that we have so many serendipitous connections. I found out you lived in Ottawa, which I, where I lived for eight years. We have mutual friends, like a whole community in Nelson, British Columbia. And there are a few other connections. Actually, I would like to tell the story of how we became connected in the first place, because to my understanding, we kind of met through my sisters, Layla Starr, my mother, Minnie Jean, because you attended an event at their farm in Vancouver. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. That was back in uh, the beginning of September or end of August. Cool. Do you mind giving me a snapshot overview? Because after your convening, my, I had like a three-way call with my family. We always do that. They were really excited. They thought it was like a really, really awesome gathering of wonderful people, such a wide range of awesome people from that area. I would love to hear your perspective. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, it, it was very serendipitous. It actually said uh, to your sister, I think it was our ancestors bringing us together. Um, I'd known your brother for a while and somebody recently said, oh, do you know who his mom is? And I said, no, why would I know that? Because I usually don't ask my friends about their parents. And um, it, this was in reference to, to the work that I, I've been doing with, uh, with Euphony Equity and Inclusion. They sent me the Wikipedia article and I said, whoa, she's his mom? And then I said, well, I'd love to meet her at some point. And and um, didn't hear anything back. And then um, 
a couple months later, I got a message from a friend, a friend of mine who, as far as I knew, wasn't connected saying, oh, well, there's going to be this um, uh, dinner and a gathering of activists in the community at Minnie Jean Brown Tricky's house. And sem- um, and I was I said, okay, well, this is definitely, definitely meant to be. And then, um, yeah, so I went to a, a lovely dinner at, at, uh, at her place, at her farm at Common Ground. And then um, I guess maybe, maybe it was a, a week or so later, um, uh, I was doing this, this uh, art series of black women um, who I uh, who were in the community um, with power words that were that, um, written written on the drawings, and yeah, I think that's when I when I met you is when you saw when you saw the drawing. Yeah, it was after that that, that we connected over Facebook. You're such an amazing artist. And oh, I'm, thanks. You had sketched Minnie Jean, and you wrote the words "Get in good trouble," and I just thought it was really beautiful. And then I was like, "Who is she? She's super cool." And then I was like, "Wait a minute! How in the world do we have mutual friends and family in Nelson, BC, and all of those different connections? And you're like a social justice passionista, activist, freedom fighter, and all of the above." I was like, "This is too cool." So, I'm really. As I said, I, I'm I'm convinced it's it's our ancestors that are bringing us together to do some good work. Absolutely. As you may know, I created my Roots of the Spirit podcast as a platform to have honest conversations about identity, race, racism, and social justice. And my ultimate goal is to galvanize change with my various initiatives. And all of the work that you're doing folds so nicely into the work that I'm doing and the mission of the podcast. I am a huge proponent of understanding our past to understand where we are right now and in order to understand where we're going. In that spirit, I would love to hear about where you were born and raised. Uh, well, usually when people ask me where I'm from, I follow that question with, do you want the list? Uh, I moved around I moved around quite a bit. So um, I myself was, was born where I currently live, um, on the unceded ancestral territories of the Coast Salish people, namely the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations in what is colonial re- colonially referred to as Canada and also colonially referred to as Vancouver. My mother, my mother's family was also born here on this territory. My father comes by way, uh, comes from Guyana, South America. Ancestors before that came somewhere from West Africa, but because of the uh, uh, transatlantic slave trade, we don't know exactly where our, our roots are. And uh, yeah, as I said, I was, I was born here um, when I was six. I moved to Vancouver, or sorry, moved to Vernon, which is in um, uh, the uh, central part of BC, uh, British Columbia, and uh, I lived there till I was 13. So my mother was a nurse, my father was a social worker. When I was 11, my mother died of breast cancer, and my father decided he wanted to go back to grad school just to sort of ensure a more solidified future for the family. So then we moved out to Toronto, where I lived for four years, and Family life was not, it wasn't a really solid family home, and I ended up leaving home when I was 16. That's when I moved to Ottawa. Yeah, trying to do the independent thing as a kid was, um, I'm sure I don't really have to go into some of the challenges that I, that I faced um, when, I was, when I was out there. And I was there till I was, uh, till I was 20. I used to listen to Carlson University radio station quite a bit, and there was a, an interview with this guy who traveled back and forth across Canada tree planting. So I said, oh, well... If he can do that, I can do that, never having done anything like that before in my life. So I, I just had this epiphany. I gave up all my worldly possessions and came out, uh, came back out west with a backpack on my back. And I was going to move to Vancouver, and somebody said, oh, well, go to Nelson. I think that you'll like it, never having been there before. Went there, stayed in a hostel the first night I was there. I had this overwhelming feeling of home that I had never felt before because my, my home life had been so 
uh, disjointed and there was a lot of upheaval. So, but I felt this real sense of, yeah, this real sense of home and belonging. So in the next 24 hours, I found a place, found a job, kind of set up shop and I was there for four years and I went to music school there. However, it was kind of difficult to really do anything with my music education once I finished school. So on the pursuit of money, I went to Calgary and I was there for seven years. I did a number of things there. So I was for a while, I was studying to be a sommelier. I was working in, I was mainly working in the arts, so working in music education. I was working at a performing arts school and working at a keyboard museum, um, leading, leading field trips and leading and uh, developing educational programs for elementary school students. But yeah, I never really, I always felt that I was in Calgary on a business trip and I really lived, like my, my real home was in BC. So um, after seven years, I moved back and I moved to Nelson and I was there for four years. And um, yeah, I just knew that I needed something bigger and it was really difficult being in Nelson. Um, so the, the culture there, there aren't very many people of color there um, and a handful of black folks there. And I really did feel disconnected from um, a cultural community, a community of folks with my, with my shared lived experience. I guess I, I ended up, that's one of the main reasons I ended up um, coming back to Vancouver. So it was sort of a, a, a loop. I mean, it was an oddly shaped loop started here and now I'm right back where I started. And the funny thing is that being here now, I have connected with people from those various stages of my journey and we're all living within the same general vicinity. I mean, like I can walk to these, these folks' houses, like people who I've known in the various eras and, and stages of my life. So yeah, I, I really feel that I am where I need to be right now and um, doing the work that I need to do. And um, I feel like I'm just kind of starting this journey of uh, really doing my life's work kind of later on in my life, later than most people. But yeah, it's things over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of serendipity and a lot of things that seem like coincidence, but I know from my experience that when those things happen, it means I'm on the right track. Yeah. That was sort of a long winded answer to a, a short question, but that's, uh, that's uh, my journey in a nutshell. Like you said, it sounds like coincidence, but it's, I can feel the energy of just how things just show up and like how we manifest people and our path right before us in our lives. Thank you so much for sharing that. I would like to go back. I want to talk about your journey as it relates to your identity Mm -hmm. and what it was like growing up in Vancouver. We'll start Mm -hmm. there. Sure. So um, I'm I'm biracial. I identify as Black. That's the way I show up in the world. That's the way I move through the world as, as a Black woman. Living in, I lived in Vancouver until like halfway through grade one was when I moved to Vernon. So um, my younger years, I, I don't, I mean, my, my memories of, of that, that time is pretty limited. And also most of my memories are about my, about my home life, my family life um, at, that, at that age. Mm-hmm. Moving to Vernon, living in Vernon um, as a black kid in the 80s and the only black kid in my school and one of a, like a very, you know, a small handful in the city. Yeah, it was, um, there was a lot of violence that, uh, that I had to, um, that I had to navigate. I didn't, I remember the first time coming home, having heard the N-word, it was about, you know, I think it was my third day of school after starting at the new school. Somebody had told a racist joke, a grade one, you know, six-year-old. So, I mean, obviously they had to have heard it, heard it from their parents and I didn't really know what it meant. And I remember going home and asking my parents and then that's when sort of the concerns about how things were going to be in school for me were like, that's when the concerns at home kind of started with how I was going to be able to uh, navigate the school there. I mean, there were things like that, but then there were also things like um, packs of kids chasing me on bikes and throwing rocks. I remember growing up feeling ugly 
I always wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes, um, like, like my friends, because I thought that that's what was, that's what was normal. Also, I mean, I remember things like people treating my father really differently, but me not really having a context as to why as, as a, as a young kid. I mean, as I grew older, it, things started to make sense, but, um, then just, I guess, subconsciously making that association that, you know, looking like my dad or being like my dad was, was a bad, was a bad thing and was, was wrong. Um, feeling that like I was, I was dirty. I remember my mom tried to, she made me a wig out of blonde, out of yellow yarn to try to show me how ridiculous it would look like if I, uh, but how ridiculous it would look if I had blonde hair. But I remember putting the, putting the wig on and then just thinking that, oh, well, I was beautiful. And I grew up with this feeling of, of ugliness and otherness. It wasn't until like, I guess in my mid twenties when I started to really deconstruct it. And even now in my late thirties, there's still internalized, internalized racism that I'm, I'm unpacking and, and working through myself. But I, yeah, I really, um, yeah, growing up, growing up in Vernon was definitely, um, there were some things that were great about being there. I was living in a fairly rural area. So behind, um, behind my back fence was just fields. So we would just go out, to play and you know be out you know be out in nature like you know eating dirt and doing the things that, that you know health uh, what I think is healthy things healthy things for kids to do I mean I knew about apples I knew about the life cycles of of salmon I mean these are things that um, I, I mean I'm very grateful for is growing up having a real reverence for nature and um, closeness um, and understanding how my own my own natural rhythms work with the, you know work with the rhythms of nature and now living in the city I feel I definitely feel divorced from that, um, which is, which is a challenge for me, but, um, yeah, there, there were, there were pros and cons. I mean, as a racialized person, I, yeah, I definitely embedded some things in me that, that are now difficult to deconstruct, but at the same time, those things, um, having those experiences gives me context in doing my work now because I see some of the same garbage that happened to me when I was a kid is it's still, it's still continuing. And even though, you know, it's, you know, 30 some odd years later, not really that much has changed. And I think that my lived experience gives me, yeah, I'm now able, able to take those, take those hardships. And now it's, it's, it's fuel for the work that I do. I identify with a lot of what you have expressed Mm -hmm. and it is incredibly unfortunate that, like you said, decades have passed and young people are still dealing with that level of racism and violence. Mm -hmm. And, And did you find a difference between your experience versus Ottawa, the serendipity (laughs) continues to roll out. But just growing up in a rural setting, like you grew up on a farm, and then we moved to a little bit of a bigger town, and then a bigger town, and then we moved to Ottawa. And for me personally, I was experiencing racial discrimination and bullying. However, it was Ottawa was like an oasis to me because it was so multicultural that I feel great in this environment. And I'm wondering what your experience was. My experience was a little bit different. I mean, I moved from, so I moved from Vernon to Toronto, which was, which is like a huge, you know, huge difference. Um, Toronto being probably the most multicultural city in Canada. And we were also living in, um, in a community that was um, a lot of new Canadians. And, um, having a, you know, having a biracial identity and being in Vernon and always like kind of seeing, like viewing myself as black and working through the, you know, identifying with the world as being black and then moving to 
um, moving to Toronto when I was 13, that, I, that idea of identity, which to me was had been binary up to that point, became much more complex. In a way, um, I guess I never really questioned my, my, my racial identity and what that meant when I lived in, when I lived in a predominantly white community, but then when I was in a very multicultural community, that's when I guess those identities became, yeah, became more complex. And I felt that like the Afro-Caribbean kids is mostly Jamaican in the community where I lived. I didn't fit in with them, but I also didn't fit in with the white kids either. So I was, yeah, I, I, I never felt like I was on the, on the cusp of something or on the border of something until then. And uh, the question is of, are you black enough? that's when that really arose and that was that was a new thing that was a new thing for me whereas like the you know the the names and things that had been called in when i lived in vernon when i moved to toronto it turned to whitey and oreo and things like that which was a new kind of idea for me to 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 navigate i guess and like so it brought an extra uh, yeah, an, ex an extra layer of complexity to what that meant. Moving to Ottawa for me was a little bit different because there were different parts of my identity that I was I was exploring. One of my uh, one of the facets I, I identify as queer as well. So that was I guess the, the facet of my identity that I was exploring and, and discovering when I when I moved to Ottawa, and that really had to do with the community folks as well that I was that I, that I had surrounded myself with mm -hmm. when I was there. So yeah. Um, yeah, Ottawa. I wouldn't say was was an oasis to me, and neither was neither was Toronto. I've never really found. I guess I didn't really find find that that place yet, where I, where I would see it as an oasis, where I can really like just be. Other than I'd say maybe here where I am right now, but that, I don't know if that is if that's locational or if that just has to do with the age and stage I am um, right now in my life. Yeah, I totally feel you on that. It's interesting now you have me thinking about my own experience because oasis might be too much of a strong way of putting it i guess you could say it was kind of like the polar opposite of what i had experienced i was like finally i can breathe mm -hmm. and it wasn't like i mean there were two years of incessant harassment <laughs> so it took a while but it was within the refugee and immigrant community that i found kinship and friendships and a, a shared experience, interestingly enough. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I feel like I can relate to you also as you're speaking about just kind of the, you're getting bullied or harassed and discriminated against and violence is being projected onto you from white people. And then comes a point where now you're the black part of your identity is in question. And so like just having to navigate that is a lot. And as you mentioned, just your stage and place in life, I'll say for me personally, the sense that I get from the narrative of women who I surround myself with, there's a language now that we didn't have growing up because we're around the same age. Looking at the work that you do and also how language plays a role and how the conversation and narrative can either help or hinder, what was the narrative and language doing at that time for you? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm just, I'm just taking a moment to really let that sink in and reflect because I have a lot, of, I have a lot of opinions and a lot of thought, a lot of thoughts on that. And I, yeah, I want, I want to answer without getting too ranty. Um, no, please, this is the forum. Oh, this is this is the rant space. Okay, well, I'm in the right place then because I, I uh, for real, let's do truth telling. Like this is, you know, it's so funny. I, I had a conversation yesterday 
And people will send me emails, like providing overviews about how their identity has shaped their entire life experience. So I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend and I was saying, no, we need a space. We need a space. And this is the space. Mm-hmm. Language. Language is one of the, the yeah, language is, language is important and language is always evolving. So I think that, I guess one of my, one of my biggest concerns about the language, sometimes it's used to discuss identity and also the language that is used in the, the equity and inclusion space is it's not very inclusive and it's not accessible to a lot of people. I think that there's a lot of emphasis on what is what is the right the right thing to say and the wrong thing to say what is the proper language to use and kind of having a hard line on that rather than rather than really em- embracing the evolution of language because language maybe I'll, I'll just I'll just be I'll just be I'll just be more blunt. I find that sometimes um, the vernacular that is in the, the language the vocabulary that is used in the the social justice space is polarizing and that it can exclude people who don't necessarily um, understand. Like I know I met somebody recently who didn't know the term person of color and they were a person of color. And so they never really felt that they were um, able to take part in those conversations. So they didn't think that it had to do with them. They just didn't, didn't know. I had somebody a little while ago recently too, who was organizing an event that was like a, a forum to talk about, talk about uh, poverty in, um, for um, racialized queer trans folks in Vancouver. Um, and they used the term um, BIPOC on the flyer. But the thing is, a bunch of folks showed up who were not BIPOC folks or who were not Black and Indigenous people of color because they didn't know what, they didn't know what the, the term meant. And because of the kinds of dynamics that, that sometimes happen in the, that's those spaces, the whole conversation ended up having to do with you know, centering their experiences and, and their feelings rather than so um yeah anyway I'm I don't know what the an- what the answer is because I think that it's really necessary that we do use explicit language when we're, when we're when we're talking about these things so we understand but I think that when we get so wrapped up in the language more than the meaning of what we're talking about it can also be dangerous did that make sense I feel absolutely. like I kind of was like a little bit roundabout there no absolutely it makes so much sense and you have me thinking about a variety of different things. And one is just the word mixed is something that, you know, I grew up gravitating toward as a young person. It seemed like something that was empowering. And then as I got older, that changed um, Mm -hmm. because I felt like I was like, wait a minute, did I choose this or someone chose it for me? Mm -hmm. And like, there was just kind of an evolution of the way I describe self-describe, but Ironically, my whole entire life experience has been shaped by the fact that people are constantly intrigued by my identity. And I say that to say that the language has been something that I've been in tune with and has evolved in front of my eyes. And on the flip side, doing anti-racism work and having just read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, yeah, with with that book, he's very he's very clear, and there there's there's an explanation. So I mean, there were things that like before reading that book, I I did not know, and then but now I know because he took the time to he took the time to explain it, uh, rather than judging like it, you know it wasn't a, an interaction where I was being judged on my intention because I used because I used a term rather than like giving me space to to have a dialogue and explain. That's really interesting because because I had a Roots of the Spirit book club and we read How to Be an Anti Racist. Quite a few people in the book club had similar sentiments. They felt like 
a couple people said this is the first time that they felt like they could read and receive and digest the information without feeling one of the words was defensive. Yep. Um, another word was stupid. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's interesting because it's like, how do we create spaces that actually get at the heart of how we truly have been raised, where we come from, our identities, how we actually feel? Mm-hmm. We can assess the problem and work from there because if we're constantly moving around, like putting on our representative of what we think we should be saying and speaking, then we're not getting to the heart of the ills. I think one of the one of the functions of uh, of um, capitalist white supremacist patriarchy is separating us and making it so that we don't have conversations. There was somebody I don't remember who who it was. I'll see if I can find the title of the book and send it to you afterwards, but sorry, the um, the author of the book, it's called Brave Spaces, From from Safe Spaces to Brave Spaces or something like that. So this person talks about, yeah, the idea of of safe spaces can sometimes evolve to mean that like there are certain things that we cannot talk about and certain things that we cannot say. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that does serve, that does serve a function, but I think that it also just, there are conversations that need to be had. Like we have been discouraged from having these conversations for a really long time. These these things about conversations about race, conversations about gender. These conversations have been have been taboo because when we actually do come together and start to talk about these things, it, it disrupts the status quo mm-hmm. and it disrupts the you know the the stronghold that capitalist white supremacist patriarchy has has on us. So by creating spaces that are so safe that don't so that there's no disruption actually in my opinion has the opposite effect, has the opposite effect that i think that the opposite thing that we really need as a human family to move forward when i talk about this the serendipity that's happened in my life i can also honestly look back and say that the times in my life where i've had the most discomfort and i've had the most i don't know i'd say like trials and tribulations and things that in the moment seem like they're negative and seem like they're bad i've learned the deepest and most and richest lessons that have given me the 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 fuel to to move forward and to like yeah to to really walk more strong on my path i don't even i don't like using that term whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger because i think that almost like you know gives you know gives license for suffering that's not really what i mean i just mean that like in the in the darkest times that is like really the beginning of when the, when the, when the light comes. So, um, yeah, I think that moving like, you know, as a, as a collective human family, moving through these difficult conversations and these difficult topics is exactly what we need to continue to evolve and move to the, move to the next stage of humanity. I think that like right now with all the, it's, I think it'd be easy to look around and see, you know, think that, we're, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing the end and we're at, you know, in many ways, we're at like a really dark time, but I really think that we're just seeing the death rattle of, we're hearing the death rattle of the, of the old regime and things are difficult right now is because we're actually like at the beginning of moving into something, into a new stage of humanity. And it's beautiful. I'm feeling really optimistic. And I have to say as, as difficult as it has been for me to tap into my higher self and consciousness to truly believe that I do believe like in the United States, and I'm interested um, your perspective because I mean we're all dealing with the same thing, no matter where we are right now. Like the world is feeling the rumblings, mm-hmm. um, but I feel like there is a lot to be said about exposing what has been underneath for so long. 
Uh -huh. I started doing this work in early 2000. People thought I was crazy. They're like, can you stop? Like racism is a thing of the past. Uh -huh. So what was your journey like from the experience that you had as you described it, some of the darkest times giving you a lot of meaning and profound understanding? Do you feel as though some of the pain that you experienced was preparing you for your purpose? 100%, 100%. But if you were to ask me that, I, I can say that now because I feel like I'm in a really good space in my life. Like, um, you know, in, at this, this day, I'm like in one of the most like, you know, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Like there's sunshine streaming from my window. I'm here talking to you sitting like, you know, my comfy sweatpants having a beautiful cup of tea. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. So it's easy for me to like sit here and say that now. But if you were to ask me those same questions when I was in the thick of it, um, I probably wouldn't have, I've had the same answer. I mean, in retrospect, in retrospect, it's, it's, we can always assign meaning to, you know, to, to what's happened. So I don't know hundred percent if that's like, I, I mean, I don't know for sure if that's, you know, that's what it was doing, but like I do because like, yeah, yeah. Now like look, yeah. Now looking back, I can contextualize what what happened and I mean I think a lot of what got that I mean this is maybe jumping to a slightly different topic but a lot of what got me through that was my art and my um my art and creativity and the intersections between art and spirituality I mean that's to me like that thing is that's that's alchemy that's where we can choose to whether we can whether we want to transmit um the the difficult times the difficult things that we've navigated and transmit that energy or or transform it and I think that Art and spirituality, or, or art, is the, the the I guess the main catalyst for me that that's helped me helped me to transform that. So, okay, so your your question was, do you, do you think do I think that the things that the the things that I went through prepared me for my life's work? I don't think that with I think that without having gone through those things, I couldn't have had I, I wouldn't have as deep of an understanding and a context, and I wouldn't have the capacity for as much of a ca capacity for compassion. That, that I do without having that lived, having those lived experiences. Just so I'm extremely clear, I asked that question knowing what your, like your life's work right now and your organization that you have founded, Euphony Equity and Inclusion Work. So I'm looking at it also from this vantage point. So I, I just want to articulate that I asked that question with that knowing and with the utmost respect, because I don't want to ask that question and a young person listening, experiencing very difficult times being discriminated against to look at that and look at me or your experience and say, oh, okay, well maybe this is preparing me. Do you know what I'm saying? I just, I just wanna put it out there that I am fully aware of what you're doing right now. You know what I'm saying? If that makes sense, because I want to make sure that it's only from this vantage point and looking at it in the rear view that I can ask that question. Yes, absolutely, for sure. And I think that like, and I wanna to say too that like the, 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 the discrimination and things like that that, I, that I've experienced that has fueled me to do the work that I'm doing today wasn't just relegated to childhood. This is stuff that's actually, that I'm, I, I'm, I'm still navigating in my life and I'm, I'm, still, moving, I'm still moving through in, certain, in um, certain, certain situations, like in, in professional situations, in um, interpersonal relationships. So, I mean, it hasn't, it's not that like, okay, I went through it and now it's done. No. Um, the, I mean, the, it's, I, I still, I still have to navigate, uh, have, have to navigate these, these things on a daily basis. That being said, um, I have also, I think that there, there's something to said to be said for feeling your feelings when you're in that trying to like push back and like try to push down the, you know, the, the, the grief in the morning and things like that, that you go, that you go through when you, when you, 
um, that you experience when you when you have when you have hardship, trying to push it down and be and be tough. I think that, that was that was like probably the the biggest source of my own suffering was denying my own emotional my own emotional processes. These things need to come out now. As you know, I've found and I've I've discovered and, and developed ways and spaces where I can safely and with dignity move through yeah move through my emotional processes nobody is a superhuman <laughs> i mean the people like the people who you see like who seem to like you know be be hard and tough and that nothing nothing phases them to in in my in my experience are the people who who need the most who need the most who need the most nurturing so yeah like i guess i'm i'm saying that i'm saying that in response to your your thought about you know young people listening and yeah, honor your honor your own feelings. If you feel sad, feel sad. If don't try to, you know, you don't have to be you don't have to be tough. If you're feeling if you're feeling afraid, it's okay. These like all these emotions are normal human processes and we have to move through to move through. You can't get like that there's a I can't I I, I went to summer camp. There was a camp song. I don't remember what the whole song was. It's like you can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it. You gotta go through it. And that's that's the same with with emotional processes. I mean, there are certain medicines that are available that can that can help us to move through them more freely, but we still have to move through them. When I say medicines, I mean things like like art and music and um you know spending time in nature, um, being around being around people who who love you. I mean, all these things are things that could help us move through, but we do have to move, have to move through in order to move on to the next, the next phase. Can you tell me about your journey as a musician, as an artist, and how you came to found Euphony Equity and Inclusion Works? Sure. Um, okay. So my, I was born into a musical family. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I did some research I don't know. I go down. I don't. I go down Google and uh, and Wikipedia rabbit holes sometimes, like two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and like this one night, I um I started just researching my family, my family last names. And there's a lot of um. So my my family last name is Cromwell. Um. I recently changed my last name because that is hasn't been my family name and many times removed. There's been a number of reasons why my family name is Cromwell, but um they weren't. Maybe that's another. That's another. That's another story for another time. But basically, somebody a few generations back changed their name to Cromwell, and then prior to that, um, the name that was given to my family was uh, was due to uh, colonialism and slavery. Um, on my this is my, on my father's side, I'm talking about, and even on my mother's side, when my mother's family immigrated um, to this part of the world, um, and they were given they were given a last name that wasn't their ancestral name. So um, because of that, I've, I've chosen my own, my own last name, Grace Child. And that has to do with like the, the patterns and like all, all the things, the hardships that my ancestors went through to bring me here and where I am in my life right now. It was Grace that really allowed me to allow my ancestors and allowed me to, to survive. So I'm the child of Grace, which is why my, I've, I've chosen the last name Grace Child for myself. But anyway, um, you're asking about the journey, journey of musicians. So I, when I was doing that research, I found out that um, many of my ancestors were musicians and artists as well. So it's something that like I was born into. I don't. People ask, "Oh, when did you first start singing?" Well, I don't remember because it's always just been a part of my life. I remember like as a kid taking road trips. My mother would teach my brother and I how to sing in three part harmony when we were on when we were on road trips. And like you know, I've always kind of just known known how to do that. Um, formal music education was mandatory in my family. 
And also like the whole Eurocentric idea of what art is was definitely instilled into, into my father. So we learned classical music. Um, my brother is a classical viola player and I learned classical piano and then was singing in classical choirs. I rejected classical piano. I, I hated it. I, I hated it. And um, I put it down when I was 13 and I, I moved to, um, I moved to theater instead. Um, but when I was 19, I just gravitated back to it because, again, it's like, it is who I am. It's not something that I, I chose. It's something, I really feel it's something that I was just, like, it's just what I was born into. So after, I went to music school in Nelson. And then following that, um, I went on to start, to start teaching music. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, I was doing a school program, so leading field trips. And one of the things that I definitely noticed was the appropriative nature of the way that certain musical concepts were, were described in, in music education and the idea of what, what, was, what was right and what was, what was a, proper, a proper way to learn music. And when I started, I guess, like making note of that and calling that out, I got a lot of pushback. Also, leading school trips, I noticed that how racialized students, and these, I'm talking about kids like six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, were being treated by, by teachers. And again, when I started to like call that out and, and yeah, to, when I started to, to call it out to, um, to my coworkers and uh, my supervisors, I definitely got, a, like, got the pushback. And then I started looking around and noticed, oh, I am the only racialized person in this space. So I guess that's kind of when the light, when the light turned on for me. And then I said, okay, then it it became important for me to, as, as a racialized person to make myself to disrupt traditionally white spaces by making, by, by just, just being present. So I started to volunteer to be, uh, to to sit on, to sit on, um, on boards. So, so I was on the board of the, when I moved back to Nelson, I was on the board of directors for the Nelson and district arts, uh, the arts council, also um, working at the youth center down there and really like understanding, I guess, like understanding the need to, to disrupt these spaces. And um, without naming names, I was hired by an organization then to do some work into, this was a couple of years ago, to enhance their capacity to serve quote unquote culturally diverse communities. And under the definition of the Canada Council for the Arts, culturally diverse means basically any folks that aren't that aren't of Western European and ancestry, yes, Western European descent, so non-white folks. I, I did about four months of research and in my findings, I guess one of the things that I when I summarized to them my final report was why is it now that you want to do this work? What opportunities are present now that weren't present before? The second thing I said was if there was opportunity in the past why didn't you think it was a priority? And the third thing is, are you willing to disrupt the, the current power structure to, to enable true inclusion rather than tokenism? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I didn't, I was a lot more, more gentle in the way, in the way that I said it, but those things were incredibly challenging and they canceled my, uh, my email address. They, um, I had to fight to get paid. They got a large sum of money from um, grant money to be able to, to do this project. They gave me like a drop in the bucket and kept the rest and basically blacklisted me from the organization. I just had this conversation yesterday. Well, that, see, exactly. So I, what I, at first I took, it, I took it really personally. I said, oh, I did a bad job. And what I was saying was maybe what I was saying was way too harsh. When I didn't think it was, was particularly radical. I mean, these things, people have been saying these things like since 
W.E.B. Du Bois. This is not like what I was saying was not particularly revolutionary, or so I thought. When I started doing research about the the patterns of things that like the the cycles uh, that happen to uh, women of color in the nonprofit space, the more I saw, oh no, this isn't just me. This is a thing that happens. This is, this is a thing that happens because of the nonprofit structure and. What, how white supremacy shows up in the nonprofit world. So that was actually what inspired me to start Euphony Equity and Inclusion Works. The word euphony itself means it's the, it's the antonym or the opposite of cacophony. So cacophony is when you have a number of different sounds that are working in competition with, with each other that basically create noise and that are displeasing. But euphony is when you take those same sounds and then the way that they work together is beautiful and harmonious. So what it really showed to me is it's not about changing changing these identities are changing these sounds it's about figure it's about understanding how they can work together to create to create something beautiful which to me like is you know i see evidence of that happening in you know in 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 nature with the diversity in nature that diversity is you know diversity is basically basically what what helps us to continue and 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 evolve so i because of, as a musician i decided to take that idea and then that having that sort of principle as sort of the, the guiding principle for how I for how I do my how I do my work but really it was inspired it started off by helping folks uh, understand how dynamics can exist in the nonprofit space but now I'm expanding to the corporate space and and uh, the for-profit world as well that's fantastic so what has been your experience thus far really positive I, I've been I've been pleasantly surprised by a lot of things I'm pleasantly surprised by the folks that actually want to do the work and before I show up who have already done some groundwork I see lots of evidence of things of things getting better and things evolving I still think I still get these experiences though where people are so get so offended by the language um, that they shut down. I mean, using terms like white supremacy and even the term racism, that folks get more offended by the term racism than actual, by the word racism than actual racism itself, which I've been finding that's, that's been a, um, a big challenge. But um, yeah, as I said, as I said, like, you know, a few times in this conversation, I think that we need to move through it. We have to sit through the discomfort and, and move through it, which is what I, I kind of just keep instilling in people. Trying to approach these things systemically and talking about them as systems and how we are all participating in some way or another in this system. And it's uh, trying to take the moral judgment out of the equation. Like, you're a good person. You're a bad person. Like, you are, you as a human being are racist. Well, rather than saying it that way, well, we are all participating in some way in a system that is a racist system. Yeah, so. I feel like uh, how to be an anti-racist really breaks that down. And for example, there were quite a few white people who were in the book club and they received that book very, like there was no resistance. Mm. Well, like the way that he explained it, it was like a great toolkit. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I think a part of the, part of the, the problem so social media is a double-edged sword, um, but I mean, like the the what the sharp edge. I guess they're both sharp. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? But like the, yeah, for sure. Well, the one, one side of it is that we're that we're having these conversations. The other side of it is that these conversations are being had through a screen and without a lot of context. So people are very reactive, mm -hmm. and you know, reading reading a book is different than having like five line exchanges on on Twitter or Facebook. It's really easy to when you don't have like the human element in there i mean when you're sitting down with somebody and having a conversation voice to voice or face to face you're communicating on a number of different levels not just through words with social media 
the responses are usually written in haste without a lot of thought and reflection before or editing before before they're, they're they're said memes are like you know one line there's not a lot of context with that book it's you know maybe the, like the you know an initial statement might be might be abrupt and might feel like jarring but then afterwards like because there's time for explanation mm-hmm. then there is then you contextualize then it allows the reader to contextualize a little bit and i'm seeing like social media can be really polarizing especially with cancel culture not allowing to ha- not allowing time and space to have these actual interpersonal real communication where we can honor each other's human honor each other's humanity in these discussions even if our ideals are in co- in conflict with one another there's an element of respect that's often removed in social media interactions whereas with that book i feel that the author was respecting respecting the reader and allowing them giving them the information they needed to be able to make make their decisions at the end of the day it's based on ignorance miseducation actually education because the intention for the educational system is the outcome that we're getting it was yes. not set up to empower people of color and so it it's working just right yep but i i hear what you're saying in terms of like the quick snap gut reaction in addition to the fact that we don't have these spaces also there's so much trauma going on and it's right in our face for us to see through media so like you said it's, it's a blessing and a curse just to put it in that kind of context like a double-edged sword mm-hmm. we're seeing it for what it is and not having those spaces so it, it infuses something in me and i feel like the work that you're doing is so important because without that we're just reacting. Yep. You live in Canada. I live in the United States. I used to live in Canada. I'm born and raised in Canada. I'm actually a dual citizen. I get asked all the time what my perception of the differences between Canada and the U.S. Although I'm like, you know, my family's in Vancouver. My whole entire family, immediate family is in Canada. So I feel like I definitely have a pulse, but I don't live there day to day. I'm interested in your perception of where I hate the word race. <laughs> so I always have air quotes uh, because we're so wrapped up in the concept, the social construct, I still use it, but race relations in Canada, like where are we? It's a conversation that the conversation, again, the conversation has been discouraged and has been taboo. I think that the United States is a lot further along with having the conversation because it's very much like, it also has to do with population as well. Because I think that in Vancouver, I think, it's 1.6% people of African descent, the population. So the conversation around race and racism doesn't include um, anti-blackness at all. That people, I think that people think that 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 doesn't exist or is easy to dismiss it. Even though I think it was two years ago, the the United Nations called Canada out on on its anti-blackness. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of contributions of, Canadians of, of African descent and it's not, it's not talked about. So there's a lot of like black folks here are under constant threat uh, of erasure. Also Canada wants to think, I think that the majority of white Canadians want to think that Canada, that racism doesn't exist here and that we are, Oh, I'm not as racist as my racist neighbors to the, to the South. So I think that the conversation, um, even approaching the conversation is, is an affront often to people's Canadian sensibilities and like, they don't want to, they don't want to um, approach it at all. The media doesn't report on it. There was an incident here just less than a year ago where there was a, a pretty violent situation with um, 
uh, at one of the high schools here in Vancouver, uh, a young student made a, a, a video of, of himself saying um, that he wanted to round up all of the N-words and put them in a room and throw a bomb in and circulated it around the school. The kid was, uh, at first, got a three-day suspension, and the, uh, the response was very much, oh, well, you know, it's just kids being kids, just kids joking around. Meanwhile, the racialized students who went to that school were feeling really uncomfortable. It took a whole bunch of parents going and storming a school board meeting for them to actually take any action at all. And now the student who made the video was transferred to another school for the remainder of the school year, but is now back. So the black students who were at that school don't feel safe and were, were transferred. This was a pretty, like a lot of folks in the black community here were talking about it and were pushing for action, talking to the media, no, there were no actual public reports until a couple weeks, until a few weeks ago. The fact that it happened last November and it took until just now for the news to report on it, wow. um, that to me kind of speaks volumes about race relations in, in Canada, that, that people would rather pretend that it doesn't exist than confront it. And I think trying to like understand, trying to get um, attention or, or get people to even have the conversations is a lot, is a lot, more, a lot more difficult. Because, yeah, it's, it's offensive to folks' sense of quote-unquote Canadian identity. When I say folks, I mean, I'm, I, mean, I mean white folks. If you ask um, racialized folks about racism in, in, in Canada, they'll have a most majority will have like a, a, very different, a very different response. But, yeah, there's a, a lot of white folks that I've spoken with, including folks in my own family, that say, oh, racism just doesn't exist in Canada. There's very much a colorblind kind of approach to race relations, That's up to and including relations with the Indigenous peoples. Things are now being, you know, being talked about more so than when, when I was young. But again, this is this is very, very recent. And also because I think it has to do with, with populations as well. That's got to make your work incredibly interesting. Just the starting point, so to speak, on the conversation. Mm-hmm. We got to have a whole nother podcast for that. I have two questions. You have created Melanin Rising, a line of apparel and online community supporting racialized musicians and arousing allyship and accompliceship. Can you talk about that? I love statement tees. And I started just making them for myself and like taking selfies and putting them on Instagram. But I mean, the the statement tees that I have are mostly like positive messages and I find that often like sometimes messages of activism can be like very it can be violent or, or, or militant. And I, I don't think that that is our way forward. I think that our way forward is a heart, a heart first space, which is why I really, so the first shirt I made said, um, read bell hooks because bell hooks primarily writes about, about love and the perspective that she writes from is about, yeah, about, about love, about, about, about self, about self love and about, um, you know, understanding how, how love and activism intersect. And I think that's a really powerful, those are really powerful messages. So yeah, the first shirt I made was read bell hooks. And then a, a bunch of people just said, oh, I want to buy one. So then I made, I made, a, 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 I did, I did a write up t-shirts just, just for friends. After that, uh, I, well, I noticed that the people who were, who were buying them were racialized people, but also allies and accomplices as well. You know, sometimes there's a question of appropriateness as to what, what's appropriate for whom to say in, in certain movements. So I wanted to create shirts that allies and accomplices can wear without the, the question of, is it appropriate for me to, to make this statement or is it appropriate for me to, yeah, to wear this. Also, there is, with racialized musicians in Vancouver and having access to, um, to performance spaces, either on festival stages or 
um, in venues themselves in certain spaces there, there there's a there's some gatekeeping that happens where basically in order to be to be seen it's almost like you need to be endorsed by by white musicians or, or, or white promoters, organizers. So what I kind of wanted to do was like have the musicians themselves, because I am a musician and I am in this, in this community and I do face the same, the same kind of barriers that would be myself and my, my peers that are, that are wearing these shirts on the website. So that if folks want to know what we're doing artistically, they can come directly to us rather than having to like, rather than having to go through the gatekeepers. Can you give a quick snapshot of where people can purchase Melanin Rising teas and where we can find you on Instagram and social media? Sure. So Melanin Rising, right now I'm, uh, I'm planning on launching in February during Black History Month. Uh, I'm also doing an art show with a friend of mine who's also a multidisciplinary artist, uh, Tanya Aganaba. And Tanya uh, is a singer, songwriter, as well as a visual artist. So right now we're just looking for a space to um, to host the show here in Vancouver. Um, and the official launch of Melanin Rising will coincide with that. Right now, I'm just raising funds to get the uh, get the full website up, up and running. Our temporary site is, well, and actually our site when the full launch happens is melaninrisingapparel.com. Um, we do have an online store and we're raising, we're raising funds through pre-sale. So there are four designs of shirts that are available. I have two different cuts of, of uh, each print. Um, they are being printed in um, in a partnership with Trapline Designs, which is a community print shop in the downtown east side. Any shirts that you purchase between now and February are going to help to yeah get us get us up and running. Awesome. Yeah. This has been such a wonderfully informative, rich conversation. I, I can't thank you enough, but I do have one last question. Sure. Naomi, what are the roots of your spirit? That's a deep, that's a deep question. That we're all one. I guess and the older I get and the more I explore this plane of existence, the more, the clearer, the clearer that becomes to me. I feel the most connected and the most off like my authentic self when I'm out in nature because it's not that I am in nature it's a reminder that I am nature and that I'm a part of this moving growing evolving thing that I, I maybe don't, don't understand but I do on a cellular level because I am it that's so beautiful thank you so much